May 19th, and I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded our fifth episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 7.30 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Today's webinar was moderated by fellow crops educators Jared Goplin and Anthony Hansen. And on the webinar were special guests Seth Nave, Extension Soybean Agronomist, Jeff Coulter, Extension Corn Systems Agronomist, and Joachim Wiersma, Extension Small Grain Specialist, all with the Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics at the University of Minnesota. The guests and moderators addressed the dry and cool conditions and implications for emergence and stand establishment and things to consider when conducting early season scouting and evaluation of your crops. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on the current crop situation as well as crop and pest management topics. Welcome to this program, Strategic Farming Field Notes, a program from the University of Minnesota Extension. Uh, We're really happy you guys have joined us today uh, on this session uh, regarding early season uh, scouting and stand establishment uh, issues. So my name is Jared Goplin. I'm here along with my colleague, Anthony Hansen, as moderators today. And, and Anthony, I guess uh, with that, I guess there has been a number of different stand issues uh, that have popped up throughout the state, uh, even some rotary hose running. Uh, I saw yesterday uh, in my neck of the woods, some dry areas. Um, so I guess, Anthony, you want to introduce our speakers and, and maybe kick us off with our conversation today? Yeah, sure. So thanks, Jared. And like you mentioned, it's pretty dry across the state. That's not uh, no new news for a lot of people. but you know, it's pretty variable for some things, whether we're getting little shots of rain or people in my neck of the woods uh, starting up pivots and finding out they have to do some early maintenance on them too. That's pretty across the board, at least where I am right now. So a lot going on with this question of moisture. So we have three different extension agronomists on today. Uh, one is Joachim Wiersma over on the small grain side of things, Seth Nave focusing on soybeans, and then Jeff Coulter as well on the corn side. And all three of these folks, if you haven't heard of them before, are all from the University of Minnesota as well. So we have a good base of expertise to work with on this question of what's happening with the stands, especially in these kind of varying moisture conditions where it's especially dry, but you know there's a little bit of movement going on. So that's leaving the question of what we're expecting to see and possibly what we need to do. So I think to start off, kind of the question would be what's happening in corn, because that's one of the first ones we're really starting to see emergence right now. Soybeans are a little bit um, further behind in development right now, just due to planting. So Jeff, do you want to mention just kind of what you're seeing with corn right now in terms of issues that you're potentially hearing about? Yeah, thanks, Anthony. Uh, from a corn standpoint, it's quite variable uh, between fields and within fields even. Some fields have really good emergence, good stands, Others are showing about 85% of the plants uh, have emerged uniformly and are doing good. And then we have about 10 to 15% of the plants that are behind uh, by about a leaf stage. Um, So, you know, that uneven emergence is not ideal. Um, If we have a plant that's one leaf stage behind its neighbors, it's only gonna yield about 80% of normal. Um, However, uh, what I have seen this year is that the stands are pretty thick. Uh, The growers have planted a pretty aggressive planting rate 
uh, for corn. And it looks like in a lot of fields, the final stand is pushing 36,000. So uh, we can uh, lose a few plants and, uh, you know, still have enough plants for maximum or near maximum yield. Jeff, how many, uh, you know, how much stand loss could we see? You know, obviously we planted pretty darn early in many parts of the state this year. Um, so in terms of replant, um, you know, I have heard, uh, I think it was north or kind of in that Benson Danvers area, there was a couple of fields, I guess, that were, were being replanted. Um, but, you know, with the early planting date, kind of what is kind of what's your feel uh, or gut feeling on replant decisions? You know, how, how much population or stand loss can we can we deal with uh, before we might want to pull the trigger? Well, we can lose a lot of plants before we really need to replant. Uh, generally, even if we only have a final stand of 20,000 plants per acre, that's going to give us about 87% of our normal yield or maximum yield. So, uh, you know, generally we don't think about replanting corn until the final stand drops below about 20,000 plants per acre. You know, there's, there's the idea that, you know, if it isn't perfect, we need, there's something that we can do and that we need to go out there and try to fix it. But in a lot of the cases, it, it just doesn't pay until the final stand is below around 20,000 plants per acre. Also have a, a question, you know, I always hear, you know, like what you just mentioned, you know, the, the corn that's a leaf stage behind, you know, might only yield about 80%. I also would expect that perhaps the neighboring plants, are they going to yield a little bit more? Um, or is that we is that really going to be more like a weed and, and you might not necessarily have higher yields in those surrounding plants? I guess just kind of curious because you see all these emergence, you know, when people fl flag emergence and then they go out and, and weigh ears or um, those types of things, you know, to check what the yield of each individual plant is. And, and I always wonder uh, what that impact might have on those neighboring plants when, when the neighboring plants are, are a stage behind. Yeah, the neighboring plants will yield a little bit more since they'll have a little more room, but it's not going to be enough to offset that plant that's behind. Uh, there's not a lot that we can do about it at this point, but, um, you know, thinking into next year and other things, trying to have all those seeds placed into uniform soil moisture is, is gonna be the key. I think this year, the uneven emergence is largely due to that unevenness in soil moisture. I think that soil moisture is really the, <laughs> that's the million dollar question and, and certainly the concern in, in many parts of the state, you know, where you've got some seeds still sitting in dry, dry soil waiting for, you know, some precip to, to get them going. Um, and Angie asked a really good question here, um, really to talk about high plant populations and water demand. So, you know, if we think about a dry year, you know, typically we'd th we would think about pulling populations back. You know, some folks that do very, very populations, you know, will pull that population back on those sandy hilltops and some of those drier soils. So um, you want to make any comments on, on that in terms of, you know, if we do continue in this drier spell, um, you know, what that might mean in terms of the, the higher populations versus lower populations. Maybe we'll be fine with a lower population if water is the limiting factor here. Yeah, at a, you know, when it's dry, we don't need as many uh, plants per acre. We have a lower yield potential. Uh, when it's dry, the more plants we have, the more evaporate, evapotranspiration that we have. So we're using more water. So if it remains dry, you know, we may be able to get by with a, a lower final stand and uh, achieve the maximum yield for the growing conditions that we have. You know, but I think the uneven emergence is still, would still be a concern. So I guess just some things to think about. It looks like we got another one here and it's, it's really about emergence by soil type. 
I should have taken a picture the other day. Um, it was one of those fields that had varying shades of, of black, basically in the field where the really dark soil, the corn had popped up a lot quicker than the, than the lighter colored soil. And it was pretty much a perfect line, um, around that. But, um, so what about uneven emergence by soil type, I guess, um, uniform emergence in parts of the field, low stands and others, um, make any comments about planting techniques, soil moisture, and, and certainly crusting in some areas. So just the variability within fields, um, any comments there, Jeff? Then we'll maybe turn it yeah, over to Seth you know, and, the, and make the same comments on soybeans. Sure. Uh, with the uh, you know dark soil background, you can really see the plants stand out a lot better. Um, and that dark soil will also warm up a little quicker, and that may help with uh, getting those plants to emerge faster. On uh, those eroded areas where we've lost a lot of the topsoil, uh, then we can you know have some clay that's exposed. And that can uh, that can result in some some challenges with emergence, crusting, uh, these kinds of things. Um, you know, these factors can also different soil types can also influence uh, the soil temperature. You know, sandy soil that cold air temperature may be able to penetrate a little uh, deeper uh, compared to like a clay soil that may not be as responsive to dips in the soil temperature. Yeah, I will say just the variability in soil type. I guess I made a comment earlier, just in terms of down pressure, um, you know, when you do go out and do your stand counts in some of those harder areas of the field, um, you know, you might find that you didn't have quite enough down pressure to get that seed where it was supposed to be. You know, there certainly is a number of, of shallow planted seeds in some of those areas, which which I think are fueling some of these problems. This so Seth, this go ahead, Jared. I guess I was just going to kind of hand that over to Seth. And, you know, have you, have you been seeing anything in terms of variability and and soybean emergence or issues, um, you know, throughout fields, uh, any of those types of issues? Yeah, for sure. I think we're seeing the exact same things in soybeans. And, um, you know, I guess there's a lot of broad questions here that come to mind just as, as Jeff was talking. And, you know, one of the, one of the key things I think that I'm, I'm hitting on is, is the fact that, you know, a lot of farmers are using the same technologies for soybeans that they're using with corn. If they're doing a really good job and they've, they've been in really good practice monitoring their corn depth and managing corn depth over time, um, those folks can probably move into soybeans and do a pretty good job um, as long as they're really paying attention. I think the, the, the biggest issue with soybean that I see is that for the most part, for years, we're able to always get that saving rain after rainfall. Sometimes we have some crusting and sometimes we have some issues, but for the most part, we have frequent enough rainfall in the spring that can save us every year on, on soybean depth. Um, uneven depth, too, too shallow, too deep. As long as we get soybeans covered up, uh, we get a rainfall within the, the first 10 days to two weeks, soybeans do just fine. And so um, we've kind of, I think we've gotten a little complacent with soybean planting. So again, good technology on soybean corn planting using the same planters has really helped. Uh, but one of the challenges that we get, um, with, with soybean now is that we get, um, um, the issue really is, is around different kinds of planting conditions now with, with soybean. So we've got um, soybeans planted no-till in some situations. So maybe the farmer's using a different different planter completely or planting into very different conditions. And so that gives us a, a different kind of a challenge uh, on the soybean side for sure. But for the most part, I think we're dealing with the same types of issues. Um, one little anecdote I wanted to mention is, is this the issue that farmers have field the field variation. We know that farmers are farming 
sandy soils and clay soils and hilltops and 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 bottom areas. So they understand variability, um, but they they've kind of built planners around what they have on their current farm and what they normally see. And you know, my own little anecdote in my system that I'm using for my little four row research planner, I use a spike row, a spike um, tooth uh, closing wheel works really well in most years when we plant too early and too tough of conditions and clay soils. Uh, but this year when things were really light um, and dry, uh, it really created too much tillage right behind um, right behind our, our, our furrow. And I had seeds that were two inches and seeds that were half inch uh, because of that specific type of a closing wheel that I was using this year. I probably could have managed it with some down pressure a little bit better. Uh, maybe I could have done some things differently, but I noticed myself that I've got very uneven uh, depth this year. And again, most years probably wouldn't cause a problem, but we've got, we've got, I've got so, some soil, some seed that was in wet soil started germinating uh, some right between that dried out and lost some seed. And then some that still sits up in the, in the upper uh, dry soil waiting for some rain. So I'm seeing what a lot of farmers seeing, and so I can I can certainly empathize. So Seth, we've had um, you know pretty variable conditions, like I mentioned at the start, for moisture. In terms of you know, we've had some little fronts come in. Uh, some areas maybe people got lucky and got half an inch of rain. Others even just a field over almost. It's a tenth or not even barely a hundredth inch of the rain. Now, in that variability, kind of what should growers be looking for in terms of What's going on with their soybeans? Whether it's you know checking for crusting or versus you know, when are the soybeans a little more happy when you get a half an inch of rain that lasts for a little while, but the soil's already dry. Does that make much of a difference? Yeah, that's that's well. I mean, first of all, I think checking for crusting is important because it's something we can do something about. And so again, um, I always want to re remind farmers to keep a, a rotary hoe around. Most of these rotary hoes are not the size and scale that farmers want to run these days, um, but um, it's good to have those things uh, around and, and available because there are going to be years that farmers are going to need those. And I guess along with that and size and scale, I'd mentioned that some of these rollers have caused us some of the problems that we're seeing with the crusting uh, amplified by some of the heavy rains after it with low residue-ish in, in some situations. So Maybe farmers need to think about both. If they have, if they are using rollers, they probably need to make sure for sure that they're using a they have rotary hoe available to them. Uh, but back to this question about scouting, I think if you're really interested and want to know what's going on, you're going to have to a farmer's going to have to go to a lot of fields, a lot of areas within the fields, and and dig a lot of plants up. Um, and it's not just you know taking a foot a row and taking a look and seeing what's coming there, you're going to have to run down the row quite a ways and look for a lot of seed. And you're also going to have to look in a lot of areas and a lot of fields if you really want to know what's going on down there. So it takes a lot of time. Uh, but um, after spraying and every, if folks have some time and what really want to be able to anticipate what kind of a stand they've got coming on soybean, they should really spend quite a bit of time. Uh, use that uh, side by side that they've got parked in the shed and, and get out across the field. Yeah, I'll admit we have our rotary hole back in the woods, like I'm sure a lot of folks have. And you know, there's some trees growing around that might take a little work to get out if we ever need it again. Um, we do have a question or comment from Bruce Potter, too. He's mentioning how sometimes a lot of rotary hoeing ends up being two to three days late. 
this brings up the question of you know, some folks, they're content to wait and see what happens versus others are chomping at the bit to get out there and do something. So how do we sit between those two of deciding, okay, how long should I wait versus when do I need to act now? Yeah, I think that's a that's an important point. I mean, they um uh I think being mentally prepared for these things is the is the first point. I think we all we're all reaction, we're all reacting, we're all reactionary. Uh, and that's just how things work on the farm and in in related business. I mean, we're we've got so many many things coming at us that we can't it, it's difficult to to take all of them in. And I don't think you know, a lot of farmers are really excited about rotary hoeing. And so, um, and they don't always do a good job of it. And it doesn't always help us. Sometimes we have, we have problems. And as Bruce mentioned in the chat, it's sometimes it's, it's too late. And so being mentally prepared and, and physically prepared, getting that machinery out and knowing where stuff is and condition of those things before it's really needed is important because once we start thinking about it, then a lot of times it's, it's a little bit too late. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's part of it that I think is really important is the, is the preparation and the mental side of it. Anthony, I've used this to growers a lot. Luck favors the prepared. That's a good way to put it. It's even if you aren't out there constantly, you know, checking things or being ready to go, if you're prepared, at least once you get the notice that it's time to do something. At least you have everything ready to go, either physically or mentally. Um, I, I just know years of farming, just growing up there too. It's if you are prepared and but not having to constantly worry about something surprising you, that seems to help the most for some years, I'd say. Um, Seth, we do have one question, probably you could cover a little bit, or it could be anyone here too, but Doug Hankerson is asking, about activating pre-emergence chemicals. I think we covered this a little bit last week, but they're wondering if a rotary hoe or a drag is, we could briefly answer that one maybe again. I'll butt in and just say rain is the best. <laughs> I'll, I'll vote for that one too. You know, we did talk a little bit about that last week. Um, I don't know, it's probably comes down to splitting hairs. <laughs> so I don't know that there's a right answer there. Maybe someone on the call here has, has an opinion one way or another, or who knows, maybe Seth or Jeff, do you have a, a feeling one way or another? Otherwise, I'd say uh, pray for a rain, do your rain dance. That's probably the best solution. Uh, I will say, um, and this is kind of a, a good transition at least, to, to work in a little bit of the weed control stuff here, since that's that's the stuff near and dear to my heart here. But um, in terms of being two to three days late, Bruce, um, that in terms of weed control, if these heavy rains would have happened, you know, five days ago, uh, it would have been pretty darn well-timed with, um, with controlling some of those little weeds. So, you know, those kind of white thread weeds, um, we're almost on the late side in some cases, the weeds are almost too big to be getting good control with the rotary hoe, but nonetheless, um, there is some, some weed control benefits there, I guess, as well. But so anywho, pray for a rain. That's kind of the, uh, the main, main point there on the pre's. Um, I think maybe we'll transition a little bit to Yoakum. Um, so you chimed in there a little bit. We got to get the small grains. We're, we're kind of saving the best for last year. Uh, you know, for the most part, small grains are looking pretty good. I think in most of the, st most parts of the state, we're, uh, kind of at that four leaf stage, uh, down in this neck of the woods in Southern men. Um, how are things looking? It's obviously a little late to do some stand evaluations, uh, maybe in, in a lot of parts of the state, but how are things looking? 
So overall, I think things look pretty darn good. Um, I apologize for the bright sun behind me. I got new windows and they haven't put the shades back up. So if I'm blinding you, I apologize. Um, Stan, you know, the earliest wheat all got in right after Easter. That's indeed uh, at the four leaf stage. Um, the bulk of the acreage got planted in the week of April 20th. That's all in the two leaf stage. The only problems I've heard of as far as stand problems is a little bit of compaction crusting behind the, the very large air seeders, the tire tracks. Um, which is not generally you'll see that most years um, and those plants will eventually get there and it will be a little bit thinner but it will fill in because that's one of the beauties compared to especially corn wheat can still tiller and you know cover up your mistakes and we are, we started early enough that there probably isn't any yield penalties whatsoever uh, I've heard only a little bit, and I wrote a couple of crop news articles about this of this extended cold period, uh, risking stand losses because of that after that Easter planting window. I've only heard of one area, which is in the Felton area, and you could literally see every single divot um, where it just stayed longer, colder, a little bit longer in those mornings where after the seed imbibed, it got killed off by the frost. And so there were some replanting decisions, but it's a very small spot. Uh, stand counts, yeah, ideally I'd like everybody to do stand counts and not at 55 miles an hour, because it is like Seth said, and like Jeff said, it's a way to check how your operation works, how your drill works, whatever implement you use to see how it worked this season. Because my experience was I've never seen seed beds this uniformly good across the state. I did not, in, in my travels from Rochester to the Canadian border, I had basically ideal seedbed conditions um, with adequate moisture. Here in Northwest Minnesota, yes, that top layer was very dry, but if you, uh, we took soil cores a week ago, a week and a half ago now, uh, there's five to six inches of water yet in the zero to 48. So once that crop is up, and has its toes into that water, uh, this crop is off, off at a very good. Yeah, that has been some of the comments, even in this neck of the woods, which is obviously prime corn and soybean country. And everybody who grows small grains um, kind of gets a funny look from their neighbors, wondering what the heck they're thinking. Uh, but, you know, when things do stay dry in, in some of these areas, kind of makes you wonder uh, if, who knows, it might be the right, right decision. Uh, this year, but there has been a couple of questions on how much water do we need? You know, is that subsoil moisture enough in Southern Minnesota to get the spring wheat crop through or how, how much rain, how much water do we need kind of going forward? So for um, conventional wisdom is that for wheat, you need about 12 to 13 inches of total soil moisture uh, to make a crop. Uh, if we have a little bit cooler temperatures instead of, you know, by the time we get to grain fill days that are in the 80s and we drop down to the mid 70s. I've seen, I've calculated this out. We've pulled off 90 bushel crops on 10, 11 inches of water. It's all about, you know, how much trend, uh, evaporation there, the plant needs to cool, you know, to cool itself. Uh, and if that temperature is a little bit lower and we have a little bit 
overcast days, uh, we could probably get away with something like 10 to 11 inches of water and still have a very, very good crop. And, you know, the conventional wisdom is, you know, the crop doesn't use anything beyond four feet. That's probably isn't true. The toes will go down deeper. And remember, even though we only take a soil core from zero to 48, um, as long as there's capillary, you know, action, water does come from a blow and move into that zero to 48 zone. And so this might be the year where if we indeed stay like this, and I would make the comparison to 87, I've talked to enough old timers, I wasn't here myself. Um, 87, they never had a rain in the Northwest Minnesota, and they still had an acceptable crop simply because we were living off of stored moisture. 88 was different. And if we think think through to next year too, you know, it makes you, you think back to some of those longer term uh, crop rotation trials where and typically the rotated crops with a small grain might do a little bit better, you know, largely due to moisture conservation. Um, so in some of these drier cycles, it does make you wonder kind of what the extra value might be if we do stay dry. Obviously it comes down to predicting the weather. So uh, flip a coin, but um, it does kind of make you think ter in terms of some of the longer term management. Here, Anthony, we're kind of coming down towards the end here. Uh, if there's any other last questions or I don't know, Anthony, do you have anything else uh, before we start to wrap this thing up here today? Yeah, and this uh, could go to the other folks too, but Yoakam, I know um, there have been a few people who mentioned when we're talking about the opposite of our dry situations, they've had storms come in, but they've actually got quite a bit of hail. Have you heard about any hail issues on the small grains end of things? Or has that been... Okay more of concern over in some of the other crops that are just emerging. I, I heard one story and, and Seth should talk about this because it's his trial that had a foot of hail on it. I was my understanding, or at least it was close by, there was a foot of hail on the road. When it comes to small grains, as long as we are the prior to jointing, which you know the earlier stuff is maybe approaching unless it's rye, winter rye or winter wheat, let it hail, it doesn't matter. Any of that foliage can disappear. The growing point is still below the soil surface. All the new growth will be unaffected. There will be no yield losses. Um, and should you contact, if you've had this happen and it looked kind of rough and you contact your hail adjuster, they will automatically defer. And that tells you how much risk there is for yield loss, basically none, because they're going to defer it. So there's no problems there. There are now with these southerly wind events and the humidity coming in. Uh, Bruce Potter found aphids about two weeks ago. Jared Goplin found some stripe rust yesterday. So in the winter wheat and rye, it is time to start scouting those fields uh, for maybe just, you know, take a gander and see if we have some other things starting to happen and starting to heat up and move on to the next phase of, of this season. And this is kind of a reminder, we're kind of into that weed control uh, period. If you haven't thought about getting your getting your weed sprayed in your small grains, now is kind of the time. Uh, so it's a good time to get out there and scout as well. The optimum timing for most weed control programs in small grains is really the three to four leaf stage, um, especially up north when you're competing uh, with wild oats. That's one of the most competitive weeds. Uh, you like to get that wild oats out. Uh, while the crop is still tillering so that it doesn't affect stand and final stand and number of heads per, you know, per unit area. And so 
down south is obviously a lot less wild oats. Um, but you have some other competitors. Um, this is the time to do, to do weed control. And for some reason, uh, the North Dakota guys were saying that they were noticing an unusually high amount of wild buckwheat, which has followed through into my neck of the woods as well. I've found wild buckwheat growing in places I've never seen it before. So I don't know what the story is there, but uh, I don't know. Maybe, Bruce, are you wandering around the countryside spreading wild buckwheat seeds? I think that might be the most logical explanation here. But get out there and check things out. You might find some unusual things. We've always had wild buckwheat at Lamberton, so it's not nothing new. So you're proving it is your fault. Thanks. Sure. <laughs> so we are at, a, at the eight o'clock hour here. Uh, Anthony, I don't know, any any final questions for, for our folks today? Yeah, I guess for just one last wrap up, um, I guess we had mentioned that Hale had Seth had in his plots. Um, what were you seeing there? And then we could uh, probably call it a wrap for today. No, just an interesting story. I left a, left after spraying some pre's on a plot west of Morris, so Graceville area, and within an hour, the farmer uh, sent me photos of of hail that was a foot deep on the road, um, just a mile south of of his place there. So we didn't have any, obviously, didn't have anything up yet, um, but um, that was right in one of those really heavy areas where they not only received hail but just large, large quantities. Uh, so. Um, maybe one of these years they're happy happy to have the quantity of uh, precipitation within the hail, um, but uh, um, kind of a unique, certainly a unique weather system and very, very small area. It was a very, very small, but very uh, yellow to white on my radar as it went through there. So just my little anecdote. I will say the hail, uh, you know, we had a little bit of hail here and, and the beans that had emerged, you know, certainly look a little bit rough, but the variable emergence in some ways is a hedge against hail, right? So we got enough moisture to, to germinate those guys. So now they're cracking through. So we should be fine then, right? So it's kind of a, a positive in some ways. <laughs> with, with that, you underscored it. You are a farmer, eternal optimist. <laughs> got to try. So with that, uh, I guess I'd really like to thanks, thank uh, Jeff, Seth, and Yoakum for joining us here today. I'd like to thank all of you who attended today, uh, as well as all of you folks who have been listening on the podcast platform. Uh, again, this program is called U of M Extension Field Notes. And uh, if you want to subscribe via your favorite podcasting platform, that would be great. We'll be back again next week, same time, same place, follow the same link. We're still, we still have not lined up our topics, but if you have topics you'd like us to address, feel free to either shoot us an email or submit them on our website. So with that, thank you.